Thank you for joining me today for Carl Erickson's Sounds and Words, a podcast with a difference. Our guest today is Professor Meg Rowland from Concordia University. She is also a former professor and academic advisor of mine from Merrillhurst University, not to mention my uh, our European guide. Welcome. When did your fascination with the legend of King Arthur really begin? Well, when I was young, I read a series of books by Mary Stewart, who some of your listeners may be familiar with. She wrote The Crystal Cave and This Rough Magic, um, and they're just wonderful. They were her kind of uh, novelization of aspects of the Arthurian legend. So I loved them as a kid, but I didn't really ever think about pursuing anything to do with the Arthurian legend more than just as an interested reader until I went back to graduate school and actually my plan was to go back and to study Thoreau and American nature writing I've been working for the Audubon Society and I uh, was required to take a class that was an early literature period and I wound up taking a medieval literature class and I loved it so much that I just stayed with it from then and went on to complete my PhD. Wonderful. So, sources like Geoffrey of Monmouth's written historical account seem to suggest that the Arthurian tales are rooted in historical fact. Do you believe they are more fact than fiction? Well, I think um, there's some good people to be, if you're interested in that question. One of them is uh, Geoffrey Ash, A.S. I think, um, we've written quite a bit about the possibility of uh, historical Arthur. And when he first started, uh, uh, you know, his research, a lot of people poo-pooed the idea of it. But I think what I take away from his research, at any rate, is that that there's a historical basis for King Arthur, not the King Arthur exactly as we have it in our fictional stories. And even Jeffrey Monmouth, I should say, is a history writer, um, but there's a lot of uh, poetic license, Mm -hmm. you might say, in Mm -hmm. his story. He's writing for a particular audience, um, and he's crafting the figure of King Arthur to appeal to the Norman nobility that are now uh, ruling England. So he has some, um, you know, some agenda of King Arthur that he is trying yeah. to emphasize. So it's like a, a, a specific history. Uh, but about it more generally, I think one of the most interesting things that's happening about the history of Arthur right now is the archaeological project that is happening at St. Padgel, which is on the west coast of England. And it is uh, a fictional site, or at least the site associated most closely with uh, where Arthur was conceived and Merlin's magic with all of that. Mm-hmm. And then the work they're doing there is just so interesting because they are finding uh, various archaeological objects that suggest that that area, rather than just being like a Celtic stronghold against the invading Anglo-Saxons, actually was really involved in trade with the Mediterranean. <clears throat> they had <throat> found, right in that period, AD 450, AD 650, um, that it seems to have been a really vibrant trading center. Um, and there's some objects that seem to have come from the Mediterranean, etc. So the whole point of that is that... Um, in terms of the historical Arthur, there certainly were, as this example of King Hadjel tells us, 
there certainly were communities that were actively really controlled and that were pretty wealthy. And also, in some of the more historic sites associated with Arthur, like Glastonbury, there seems to have been some kind of a settlement and a powerful lord. So I think, or a warlord, I should say. So I think there's some basis for where those stories come from. And then they just evolved over the years and became uh, fictional stories in the way that we might think about Johnny Appleseed mm-hmm. or those kind of stories that turn into magic over the years. Okay. The PowerPoint presentation uh, for your for your OMSI lecture, The Search for the Holy Grail, highlights five literary sources for the legend of King Arthur, ending with Thomas Mallory's contribution in 1460. Are there many other additional source, sources that shed light on the king? Well, specifically, you mean on the historicity of the king or just the, the legend in general? Well, in general. Oh, okay. Well, there are a lot of sources. Um, maybe you could itemize those. I can't remember you're from the PowerPoint, so can you rename those, and then I'll make sure to add any to that? Um, sure, I can go ahead and pull PowerPoint back up here. It may take just a second. Um, while that's okay. while that's uh, while that's coming up, are there any uh, references within Shakespearean plays concerning Ar- uh, Arthur? Uh-huh. Sure. Um, and I might just say one of the great sources, really, of the Arthurian legend begins with who you mentioned, Geoffrey of Monmouth. He's one of the earliest tellers of the story of King Arthur as a, as a really powerful military leader. Um, so, so there's that story. There are also many sources from the French, and I don't know what I mentioned them, but there's um, the stories of Christian de Troyes, from the 12th century that were very popular French versions of the story. Um, and then there are uh, uh, the Vulgate Cycle, which are uh, popular stories that are sort of uh, episodic and loosely related. And then there are also additional English sources, the Alliterative March Arthur, the Stanzaic March Arthur. So those are some additional sources that I you know, should add to uh, whatever we there. Um, and then you asked me, what was the last question that you asked me when I answered that? Um, well, uh, actually, I've got the PowerPoint up, but why don't we, um, the, uh, let me just follow up on one particular area of interest. Are there any uh, re- allusions to the legend of King Arthur within the Shakespearean plays? Oh, that's right. That's exactly. Um, you know, not really. Um, it's interesting, you know, uh, a user, if you will, of, of uh, you know, great stories, mm-hmm. and, and uh, especially in histories. But for whatever reason, or at least that we have, I mean, you know, who knows if we had all Shakespeare's plays that were ever written. Right. But for whatever reason, he really doesn't tackle that story. Maybe by the early modern period, um, the popularity <laughs> of the King Arthur legend had, had really waned. Mallory's writing in the mid uh, 
Early 1600s, quote from your original presentation. It's a line written by Norris Lacey in The Grail Quest and The Search for Arthur. And the quote is, uh, the quest has one of its purposes to provide the very narrative space within which adventures can occur. Can you expand upon the significance of that um, short passage? Sure. I mean, I think the idea is that the quest, you know, as Norris Lacey says, is the quest is really um, not so much important for like whether or not there was a historical Arthur, but for the way that it kind of uh, addresses a very human interest in the idea of adventure or the idea of the development of the self, really, which is what the Grail Quest is about. It's a spiritual quest. And it's a quest for um, deeper understanding and experience, spiritual experience. So I think um, the story kind of provides us, uh, as Marshall and she said so beautifully, that space for these adventures to happen because in the framework of the quest, all manner of experiences and um, encounters happen. So it's, I think the part of the popularity, at least early on, of the story was that within that framework, a lot of smaller stories could be told. And one thing that I will say to students sometimes is, um, we can compare it in some ways um, to the whole Star Wars story mm-hmm. because they start out kind of in the middle and, mm-hmm. then, and then there's prequels and sequels and then there's extra adventures and I mean I think um, you know the writer and director of, of Star Wars also influenced by the Arcarian Legends of course yeah. and so that's that similar kind of framework that allows these spaces for these stories to be created and added on. I see. So when we limit, you know, we would never, hopefully people a couple hundred years from now won't necessarily ask, you know, did they really believe those stories about Star Wars? It's not really what they're about, you know. Mm. It's really, the other stories are kind of allowed to happen within that framework. And the framework has mm. this great flexibility to, you know, add new episodes and to put a particular spin on it. I should say something interesting about the legend and then as it moves to Mallory, Thomas Mallory. Prior to Mallory, it really had that episodic nature and different writers took different pieces of it. Mm. But when we get to Mallory, his great innovation was to, you know, he had read a lot of resources, but his great innovation was to write as he puts it, you know, the birth, life, and death of Arthur. Mm. And he puts it into a chronological order with the life of Arthur as the arc. And that really was a great innovation of his. Okay. Your blog, uh, A Passionate Geography, Romancing King Arthur's Roman War, describes the journeys of Arthur as relayed in this myth, in these mythic tales, but why is the geography itself so vitally important to the understanding of the legends? Oh, that's a great question. Well, <clears throat> I think that maybe um, 
Well, a couple of things. For the one thing, the geography really points up the interest and relationship uh, throughout Europe, particularly where these stories are being written, you know, in France and in England, uh, with Maui. And the complicated history um, that these regions have had, you know, as Belgium being part of, you know, over time becoming part of the Roman Empire mm. and the withdrawal mm. of, that, um, of that power and then the development of themselves gradually over time into uh, regions and nation states. Um, I think one of the things that interests me about the, about the geography is that it opens up the tale for me to kind of explain the way that the tale is co-developing over time with the development of new ideas about geography and particularly about the world. Uh, an interest for me in that story, uh, the Roman War, is that that begins with Jeffrey. So, you know, late 1100s, eventually late 1100s. And that story is really the most popular part of the Arthurian legend in medieval times. It's mm. not for us anymore, but it really was. Okay. And so I just asked myself that question, why, why would that have been so incredibly popular? And I think because ultimately it answers the question about what is Otrum and what is the, the, uh, who is the successor to the prestige and the power of Rome. Oh, okay. But along the way, it tells us a lot about what people thought about uh, geography and how they understood the conception of the world, which I find really interesting. Yes, yes. Why do the legends of King Arthur run away with our imagination? So what is it that gives, what makes it so timeless? Uh, that's such a good question. Um, I think that i thought about this a lot, but I, I think that it has to do with the, the way that the characters, and, and maybe, you know, most popular people know Arthur and Guinevere and Lancelot, but the way that the characters have really noble aspirations, I think that speaks to us because we have those too and, you know, want to seek the, the highest and the best, so that is one aspect of it. But I think the other aspect is the way that they get caught between two two goods, I guess you would say, two, two desires for good. So, for example, mm. in the case of Lancelot, you know, his desire to be the best knight, but also to be, you know, the highest chivalric lover, mm. or, you know, caught between loyalty to King Arthur, but then also to a kind of a goodness and recognition of Guinevere, which Arthur mm. is kind of oblivious to. Mm. And that's true with Guinevere, and that's true with Arthur. I don't know about you, but... The hardest decisions I've ever faced in my life went two values that are equally good to into conflict with each other. Oh, yeah. Those are the okay. hardest and most heartbreaking decisions to make. Right. And that's what we see there. And I think that's, I think that's a part of it. And it has such a grand sweep, you know, but it's just really, it does fire up the imagination, I think, on all of those fronts. Yes, yes. Uh, John Steinbeck's The Acts of King Arthur and His Noble Knights caught my interest a few years ago, and I enjoyed reading the Arthurian legends as conveyed by that great writer. In your opinion, did Steinbeck's work break any new or important ground regarding the Arthurian legends? Well, that is a great question, Carl, and I think I didn't have to turn that question around <laughs> to you, because that is not an Arthurian text that I have read. I've read other Steinbeck works. But for whatever reason, I have never read that particular Oh, okay, okay. Obviously, I need to, so maybe I can ask you, what do you think? Uh... I guess to me, it, it seemed to breathe a vitality and um, 
kind of an active, uh, it was so such an active voice. It was, it was so, there was such a vitality to it, uh, to the, the narrative that it, it really drew me in and it made the, it made the characters seem even more real than they, you know, had been in the past. And it, it yeah, just, yeah, it just kind of resonated in my mind for a while too. And it actually got me kind of pushed me back towards liberal arts and humanities and a little bit. So, um, I guess oh, that's, wow, that's good. yeah, I, I guess. I think that there is a way that it intersects with sort of American idealism, mm-hmm. you know, of from either the, the cowboy ethic or, you know, just uh, the idealism in general. And I can see how that would fit in, obviously, with his work and his interests. So now I'm inspired and I have to read that. Okay, very good, very good. Uh, let's see. Last question for you. Whatever happened with the uh, Rick Steve show on uh, King Arthur? Is that still in the works? Oh, yeah, you know, um, that there was going to be uh, a show written, not so much about that, but just more about literary, literary travel. But right during that time, the whole Brexit um, oh, okay. came forward, <laughs> and so there was kind of a redirect. So we haven't done that yet, but hopefully that'll, that'll be in the works. All right. But, I mean, in mentioning that, it is interesting just for me personally, um, you know, I became very interested in the Roman War and the geography, and so uh, I decided, uh, fortunately, I, I had some other work in Europe that summer, and I, I decided to actually try to follow that route, and for your listeners, uh, I would recommend if you have if a favorite book, it doesn't need to be King Arthur, but there's something really wonderful about reading a text and then actually walking that geography mm, and mm-hmm. um, kind of reliving the text. And I know you know from mm. our study abroad experience yeah. that yeah. for me it led to that, which was yeah. really wonderful. So it's been a pleasure to really try to uh, imagine that world in, uh, in kind of a more complete way. Yes, yes, indeed. All right. Well, uh, Meg, thank you so much for joining us today on Sounds and Words, and I look forward to talking with you again sometime. Thank you, Carl. A pleasure. Take care. You too.